We are all on trial. The religious and the irreligious, believers and atheists, everyone must stand before God's throne for judgment. The standard for justice is God's perfect law, and it is by that standard that everyone deserves to be condemned. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. Today we continue our studies in the message of salvation by hearing what it is to declare someone righteous and determine what implications that judgment has for faithful everyday living. Well, Phil, today's message is on being declared righteous. Sometimes such theological concepts can be a little challenging to follow. So could you help us by giving an illustration to get us started? Well, sure, Mark. I want to use an illustration that Donald Gray Barnhouse used to use. He used to ask people to hold out two hands, and he would put a book on one hand, and he would say, now that hand is you, and that book is your sin, that's resting on top of you and brings you under the judgment of God. And he says, now, the open hand you have in front of you, that hand represents Jesus, and there's no sin on him at all. And what I want you to do, Dr. Barnhouse used to say, is just put the book from your hand over to the other hand, the hand that represents Jesus, and now Jesus himself is taking all of your sin, and now there's no sin on you, there's no guilt of sin on you. That's what happens in our justification. That's how we're declared righteous. It's because all of the sin was put onto Jesus when he died on the cross. Well, that does help. Thanks, Phil. But you know, in a place like America, if people still believe in God, they tend to view him not as a just judge, but merely as one who is abounding in love toward all. How might that somewhat limited view color our understanding of the doctrine of justification? Well, Mark, it's so important to understand that God is a God of both love and justice. And I don't think we'll ever understand the love and the grace and the mercy that Jesus has for us unless we first understand that we are truly under the judgment of God against our sin. And we're under that judgment because God is perfectly holy and just. We need to hold these things together in our understanding of God. All right. Thank you, Phil. Turn in your Bible now to Romans chapter 3, verse 21, and let's hear God's Word for us today. Try to see if you can picture the following scene. An accused criminal stands before an impartial judge to receive his just sentence. And the legal proceedings begin with a court official reciting the laws of the kingdom as he listens, the criminal starts to realize that he is doomed to be condemned. For as it turns out, he has violated every single law in the book. Whatever the charge, he is certain to be found guilty. And when the judge finally turns to the defendant to ask how he pleads, the man is speechless. He stands before the judge in mute terror unable to utter anything in his defense. This is the legal predicament described in the opening chapters of the letter to the Romans. I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Humanity stands in the dock. The religious and the irreligious, Jews and Gentiles, believers and atheists, 
Everyone must stand before God's throne for judgment. And the standard for justice is God's perfect law. By that standard, everyone deserves to be condemned. You can see it if you look in Romans chapter 3, back at the end of verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. And When the law is read, therefore, every commandment is an accusation. There's nothing we can say in our defense. Romans chapter 3, verse 19, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. This reminds us yet once more why we need the message of salvation. We are guilty sinners who belong to a guilty race and who deserve nothing but God's wrath and condemnation. Nor is there anything that we can do to save ourselves. God's righteous requirements cannot save us. They can only condemn us because we cannot keep them. Therefore, when we stand before God for judgment, there is not the slightest chance that we will be accepted on the basis of anything that we have done. This is not a trial in which we are innocent until proven guilty. Instead, it is a trial in which we have already been proven guilty. And guilty we will remain until we are declared innocent. Now, having described our predicament in all of its miserable detail, the Apostle Paul announces in verse 21 that a legal remedy has been made available. But now, a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known. With these two little words, but now... We have a major transition in Paul's argument. And more than that, these words introduce a great turning point in the history of salvation. Up to this point, we stand condemned. God's perfect law tells us that we cannot be declared righteous at the bar of God's justice. But now, a righteousness from God is revealed. This is part of the good news of salvation, that God has provided the way for us to be declared righteous, or to put it in the biblical way, he has provided a way for us to be justified. Now, there is more to salvation than justification by faith. As we have seen throughout this series of sermons, sin is a complicated problem. Yet the message of salvation is that God has provided everything that we need in Jesus, Where sin brings bondage, his salvation purchases our redemption. Where sin brings alienation, his salvation reconciles us to God. And where sin leads to death, his salvation raises us to eternal life. Now we can add justification to that list. Where sin brings us under condemnation... The salvation that we have in Jesus justifies us before our righteous judge. Without in any way exaggerating the importance of this doctrine of justification, it must be said that this doctrine holds a central place in the message of salvation. I say this because it is one of the central themes of Scripture. As important as the doctrines of redemption and propitiation and reconciliation and other doctrines are, each is mentioned only a handful of times in the New Testament. By contrast, various forms of the word 
justify appear almost 200 times. The centrality of justification has been recognized by all of the best theologians. John Calvin called it the main hinge on which salvation turns. English reformer Thomas Cranmer described it as the strong rock and foundation of Christian religion. Most famously of all, Martin Luther said that justification is the chief article of Christian doctrine so that when the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. Whether we think of justification as the hinge or the foundation or as the standing and falling article of salvation, the point is that there is no salvation without it. The reason for this is that justification answers the most fundamental question of all. It's a question that Job once posed like this. How can a mortal be righteous before God? How can a mortal be righteous before God? And it is self-evident that a doctrine that explains how to get right with God is of crucial importance. Now, the answer to Job's question, how can a sinner be found righteous, lies in the biblical teaching about justification. Justification is a legal term. It comes from the court of law, and it pertains to a person's judicial standing. To justify is to render a favorable verdict. It is to declare a person righteous. Justification is a decision of the court stating that someone has a right relationship to the law. It is the announcement that as far as the law is concerned, the defendant is innocent. One way to define justification is to contrast it with its opposite, which is condemnation. To condemn is to declare a person unrighteous. It is the judicial verdict that as far as the law is concerned, he is guilty. Now, this act of condemnation is not what makes a criminal guilty, of course. His own actions make him guilty. He became guilty the moment that he violated the law. But when, finally, he is condemned, the court pronounces him to be what he is, namely a guilty sinner. You can see how justification is the opposite of condemnation. To justify is to pronounce a verdict of innocence. In justification, a person is not made righteous, but declared righteous. And of course, this is one place where the Roman Catholic Church historically has differed from Orthodox Protestant theology. In fact, it may even be the most crucial place where Roman Catholic theology has differed. In Catholic theology, justification is that process by which grace is infused into the sinner to make him righteous. And the problem with this view of justification is that it doesn't conform with the biblical terminology. In general, the biblical concept of justification means legally to declare righteous and not actually to make righteous. So, for example, consider Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 1, where the Bible teaches that when men have a dispute, they are to take it to court And the judges will decide the case, justifying the innocent and condemning the guilty. If you look at this in the New International Version, you'll see the word acquitting the innocent, but actually it's the Hebrew term for justifying. 
Now, obviously, a judge does not make a person guilty. He simply declares him to be guilty. And by the same token, the word acquit or justify means to declare righteous. When we turn to the New Testament, we find justification used in much the same way. We find it used that way here in Romans chapter 3. As in the Old Testament, to justify is the opposite of to condemn. So later on in this same letter to the Romans, Paul will draw this contrast. He'll say, it is God who justifies, who is he that condemns? And to put the matter positively, to justify is to declare that a defendant is innocent of a charge. And actually, it is to do something more than simply to declare a person not guilty. For in justification, God does not simply clear a sinner of all charges. He declares that sinner to be positively righteous. Justification thus is God's legal declaration that on the basis of the perfect life and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, received by faith, a sinner is as righteous as Christ himself. Now, where does this righteousness come from? As we have seen, our problem is that we don't have any righteousness of our own. And if that is the case, how can a righteous God declare that we are righteous? How can he justify us? If he did that, he would be declaring us to be what we are not. What then is the source of our justification? Well, this will be the first of three points I want to make from Romans chapter 3. I want to explain the source of justification, the basis of justification, and then finally the means of justification. First of all, the source of our justification, and that is simply the free grace of God. This is what we see in verse 23. We are justified freely by his grace. As Paul says later in Romans chapter 8, verse 33, it is God who justifies. Now to say that we are justified by grace is to say that justification is far more than we deserve. It is an act of God's undeserved, unmerited favor. This is what Thomas Cranmer wrote in his sermon on salvation. He wrote, No man can by his own deeds be justified and made righteous before God, but every person of necessity is constrained to seek for another righteousness, another justification to be received at God's own hands. You see, this is the message of salvation, that God offers righteousness to sinners as a gift. The source of this justification is the grace of God. Now, this brings us to a significant point of controversy in the study of the New Testament. You can see it if you look carefully at Romans chapter 3, verse 21. The gift of God's righteousness is mentioned twice in these verses, first in verse 21, but now a righteousness from God has been made known. And again in verse 22, this righteousness from God. Now, technically speaking, these verses do not speak of a righteousness from God, as the New International Version has it. Technically, what they say is that it is a righteousness of God, and there is more than one way to interpret that little phrase, righteousness of God. Now, you'll have to bear with me a moment. It is the doctrine of justification, after all. Perhaps of God is what a grammarian would call a possessive genitive. 
An example of a possessive genitive is the phrase house of David. That's possessive, you see. David is the one to whom the house belongs. And perhaps righteousness of God is the same kind of phrase, so that righteousness of God is simply the righteousness that God possesses, the righteousness that belongs to him, and perhaps also the righteousness that he displays in salvation. There's another possibility, however. These words of God may explain where the righteousness comes from. This would be called a genitive of origin. An example of this would be the phrase, son of David, where David is the origin or the source of the son. If the righteousness of God does contain a genitive of origin, then God is the origin of the righteousness. And obviously, this is the interpretation that the New International Version favors. When it speaks of a righteousness, you see, from God. God is the source of that righteousness. He is the origin of the righteousness he bestows on sinners. So which interpretation is correct? That's the question. Does the righteousness belong to God, or does it come to us from God as a gift? I think actually the answer is both. Certainly the righteousness of God is a righteousness that he possesses, and yet the issue in these verses is not simply whether God is righteous, although that is part of the question, but whether we can become righteous. Paul seemed to cast doubt on this very fact back in verse 20, where he reached the alarming conclusion that no one can be declared righteous in his sight. You see, that is the problem, that we cannot be declared righteous. Now in verse 21, he announces the good news that we can be declared righteous, not because of our own righteousness, but because of a righteousness that comes from God. This is the kind of gift righteousness that Paul had in mind when he testified, and this is Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, that he wanted to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. This is also what Martin Luther meant when he spoke of an alien righteousness, Since there is no righteousness in us, we can only be justified by a righteousness that comes from somewhere outside of us. That righteousness of God is God's own righteousness which he grants to us in Jesus Christ. You see, if we are declared righteous on the basis of a gifted righteousness, And the source of our justification must be the grace of God, for that is what grace is. It is God's free gift for utterly undeserving sinners. The fact that the source of justification is the grace of God confirms what we have been saying throughout this series. That is that we are saved by grace, just as it is God who delivers and God who redeems, and God who atones, and God who reconciles, so it is God who justifies. Now, on what legal basis does God grant this gift of his righteousness? How can he justify the wicked without becoming wicked himself? I mean, it would be an outrage for a righteous God simply to overlook or to excuse sin. If God intends to justify sinners, he must have some legitimate judicial basis for doing so. 
Now, the answer to this problem is that God justifies sinners on the basis of the perfect life and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. You see, this is the basis of justification. It is the perfect life and the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Justification is not amnesty. It is not pardon without principle. It is not a forgiveness which overlooks or even forgets our wrongdoing and declines to bring it to justice. No, justification is an act of justice, of gracious justice. John Stott thus defines it as God's righteous way of righteousing the unrighteous. That's God's righteous way of righteousing the unrighteous. And Stott goes on to say that when God justifies sinners, he is not declaring bad people to be good or saying that we are not sinners after all. No, he is pronouncing us legally righteous because he himself, in his Son, has borne the penalty of our law-breaking. Thus, you see, the justification finds its basis in the cross. You can see it in front of you in verses 24 and 25. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Now, if you have a very good memory, you can recognize that these verses mention two of the themes that we discussed some months ago. One is redemption. We are redeemed from our bondage to sin through the cross, where Jesus offered his blood as the payment for our sin. And the other is propitiation, the sacrifice of atonement. You see, in the cross, Jesus makes God propitious to us by turning aside his wrath against our sin. You see, now we discover that justification is based on that redeeming and atoning work of Christ on the cross. It was by his blood that Christ purchased our redemption, by his blood that he atoned for our sins. And it is also by his blood that he secured our justification. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, he was treated like a condemned criminal. Crucifixion was for the lowest of the low, for traitors and for murderers. Of course, Jesus was neither a traitor nor a murderer. In fact, he had never committed the least sin. And yet God suffered him to be crucified in order to take away our sin. What happened was this. God imputed our sin to Jesus Christ. This is a term we've encountered before, imputed. Something we talked about when we tried to explain how it is that the sin of Adam came to rest on all mankind. To impute is to credit something to someone's account. And of course, that's precisely how we became sinners in the first place. Adam's sin was credited to our account. By the imputation of Adam's sin, we are reckoned to be sinners. Now we are introduced to a second imputation. It lies behind the verses before us. It is the imputation of our sin to Jesus Christ. Jesus was perfectly righteous, and yet he died a sinner's death. How could God allow such a thing? And the answer has to do with imputation. Once our sin was placed on Christ, once it was credited to Christ, once it was imputed to Christ, then he was condemned to die. Not for his own sin, but for our sin. So on the cross, God reckoned Jesus to be unrighteous. 
The scripture said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. But that's not the end of the story. The scripture goes on to mention a third imputation. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, if we are to be justified, that is to to say, if we are to be declared righteous, it's not enough for our sins to be imputed to Christ. His righteousness must also be imputed to us. Only then can God declare that we are righteous. We find here in Romans chapter 3 that righteousness is exactly what God has provided. It is a righteousness from God, a righteousness that flows from the grace of God on the basis of the work of Christ imputed to the sinner. Now, all of that may sound somewhat complicated. It takes a while to take it all in. There is, I think, a rather simple way to illustrate how imputation works in our justification. The illustration may be familiar to some of you because it comes from Donald Gray Barnhouse, formerly the minister of this church. You first heard it at the age of 15 when someone was trying to share the gospel with him. What happened was this. The man took Barnhouse's left hand and he drew it out, palm upward, and he fixed him with an intense gaze. This is how Barnhouse describes the experience. He says, this hand represents you. On that hand, he placed a large hymn book. And then he said, this book represents your sin. The weight of it is upon you. God hates sin and his wrath must bear down against sin. His wrath is bearing down upon you, and you have no peace in your heart and life. He drew my other hand forward, Barnhouse writes, palm upward, and said, This hand represents the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior. There is no sin upon him, and the Father must love him because he is without spot and blemish. He is the beloved Son in whom the Father is well pleased. I saw my two hands before me, one covered with the large book, the other empty. I realized that I had the sin and the Lord Jesus Christ had none. And then this man put his hand under my left hand, the hand that represented me, the hand upon which the book was lying, and with a sweeping gesture he turned my hand over so that the book came down upon the palm of my right hand, the one that represented Christ. My left hand he put back as it had been, I could see that the burden was gone from it entirely. And he then said to me, This is what happened when the Lord Jesus Christ took your place upon the cross. He was the Lamb of God who was bearing away the sin of the world. And as Barnhouse finished recounting his story, he said, This is the justification that acts upon our sins to take them away from us and to place them upon the Savior. Now, all of that is true. But in a way, it is only half the story. For at the same time that God was imputing our sins to Christ, putting the burden of our unrighteousness upon him, he was also imputing Christ's righteousness to us. And perhaps we could illustrate this with a second book, perhaps a Bible, resting on the right hand. That is to say, resting, as it were, on Christ. And this second book represents the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, of which we have none at all in ourselves. But you see, when that righteousness is imputed to us, we become as righteous as God's own dear Son. And all of this is entailed 
by what the Scripture says, that we are justified by His blood. You see, the cross shows that a blessed exchange has taken place, that our sin was imputed to Christ and He was condemned, and that His righteousness is imputed to us so that we are justified. Now, earlier, we defined justification both legally and biblically. Now, perhaps we should define it theologically, and one of the best definitions comes from our own Westminster Shorter Catechism. It goes like this, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. It's what we've been saying, that justification is an act of God's free grace, that it involves the pardon of our sins. It involves accepting us as righteous in God's sight because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And now that last phrase is essential because it identifies faith as the means of our justification. Faith is mentioned at least six times in Romans chapter 3. This righteousness from God comes through faith, verse 22, to all who believe. Verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Or again in verse 26, God is described as the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Or again, verse 27, boasting is excluded on the principle of faith. For we maintain, and this is verse 28, that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. You see, what this passage emphasizes from beginning to end is that we are justified by faith. You know, people sometimes wonder what they have to do to justify themselves to God. The answer, of course, is that there is nothing we can do to justify ourselves to God. Only believe. This is where Christianity differs from every other form of religion, from every merely human attempt to attain righteousness. That is what is always so hard for people to understand about biblical Christianity. Isn't there something that we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God? This is the question the disciples once posed to Jesus. They asked, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Or again, it is the same question that the Philippian jailer demanded of the Apostle Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul gave the same answer that Jesus gave. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. In other words, there's nothing you can do to justify yourself to God. The only thing you can do is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you trust in him and in his justifying work on the cross, then God will declare you righteous. And when the Bible says that we are justified by faith, what it really means is that we are justified by Jesus. The New Testament never says that we are justified on the basis of faith, or on account of faith. No, what it always says is that we are justified by faith or through faith. In other words, it is not our faith itself that saves us. Rather, it is Christ who saves us. And the way that we receive Christ and salvation in him is by faith. 
Faith is the instrument of our justification. It's the channel by which we receive the righteousness of Christ. J.I. Packer defines faith as the outstretched empty hand which receives righteousness by receiving Christ. Many years ago, Bishop Ryle wrote that true faith is but a laying hold of a Savior's hand. It is a leaning on a husband's arm. It is a receiving of a physician's medicine. It brings with it nothing to Christ but a sinful man's soul. It gives nothing. It contributes nothing. It pays nothing. It performs nothing. Faith only receives, takes, accepts, grasps, and embraces the glorious gift of justification which Christ bestows. If justification comes through faith, then I tell you that you must believe in Jesus Christ to be justified. Remember how desperate your situation is, legally speaking, that without Christ you are doomed to be condemned. The Bible warns that whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And yet the Bible also promises in the very same breath that whoever does believe in him is not condemned. One man who recognized his peril and came to Christ in faith was the poet William Cooper. Cooper had long suffered from depression. He lived, in fact, in an insane asylum where the conditions were most appalling. And yet despite all of his physical and psychological torments, Cooper's most acute sufferings were spiritual, for he considered himself to be a condemned sinner. Yet the day came when he found his legal remedy in the saving message of justification. This is the story that Cooper told. A happy period which was to shake off my fetters and afford me a clear opening of the free mercy of God in Christ Jesus was now arrived. I flung myself into a chair near the window and seeing a Bible there ventured once more to apply to it for comfort and instruction. The first verses I saw were in the third chapter of Romans. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Immediately I received strength to believe. The full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone on me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement that Jesus had made. I saw my pardon in his blood. And I saw the fullness and the completeness of his justification. In a moment, I believed and received the gospel. What we are saying from the scriptures is that this salvation is not just for William Cooper. No, it is available to everyone who believes the gospel and receives Jesus Christ. By his free grace, God offers you complete, full justification on the basis of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And if you put your faith in this Jesus, you will be declared righteous at the bar of God's eternal justice. And then let us pray. Our Father in heaven, in view of our desperate situation, not having any righteousness of our own, we give you praise for that perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. We receive it by faith. We rest upon it. 
And we do so so that we might be found righteous in your sight through Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You're listening to Every Last Word with Bible teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Reverend Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support of this ministry.